humanity so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is, the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Jesus' death broke Satan's power because Jesus' death was in our place for our sins. When we put our faith in Jesus and his work, our sins are paid for and the devil has no hold on us anymore. We don't belong to him anymore. Our chains are broken. We have a new loving master now. And not only has Satan lost his hold on us, Satan himself is under the authority of the risen Jesus. Jesus was raised to reign. We've seen that recently in 1 Corinthians 15. And Ephesians says it again about God the Father. He raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms. Far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. I would say that's as comprehensive a victory as you can get. Every other power, human or spiritual, is under the feet of the risen Christ. And that victory is for the church. So a writer called Chuck Lowe spells what that means for us. He spells it out for us. Christ, seated at the right hand of God, has already begun to reign as king in the heavenlies. And the evil spirits are included among his subjects. His kingdom is cosmic in scope. All spiritual beings are under his authority. The authority of Christ includes every realm where the demons might possibly be found, whether in this age or the age to come. So as we come to this topic of spiritual warfare, we don't approach it with fear. We face it with absolute confidence that Christ has already won. We need not fear Satan's power. Christ has much greater power and far higher authority. So that's the foundation of whatever else we say about spiritual warfare. This is what we must never lose sight of. But there is a second truth about the situation. The war isn't over. The devil has lost and he knows it. At Christ's return, he will be thrown into what Revelation describes as a lake of burning sulfur. Jesus himself calls it the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the devil's future. But until Christ's return, the devil fights on. Not to win. He knows that's already beyond him. He fights simply to do as much damage as he can while he can. Revelation chapter 12 says, He is filled with fury because he knows that his time is short. The devil hates God. And he hates all of those who belong to Christ. And he hates us particularly because the devil used to be our master and now he's not. The devil now is our enemy and we must be ready for a fight. He always has been our enemy. But I think for many of us, we just don't factor this well enough into our thinking. Speaking of myself as well, we know Jesus has done the work so we can be saved from God's wrath and forgiven of our sins. We uh, remind ourselves of that almost every service we have in church. We also realize that as Christians, we're called to a life of holiness and obedience. 
We're constantly reminding ourselves of that. But very often, we just leave out the third factor in the equation. We forget our enemy. We forget he is working against us to hinder our obedience and to divert us from holiness. And when we forget the devil, we can end up thinking that obedience and holiness are just impossible because we keep on and on failing. But I honestly believe much of the time, if we had a bit of clarity about this, if we just had an awareness that the devil is working to hinder our holiness and obedience, we would have considerably more success. A pastor called William Still explains it like this. The great confusion with regard to sanctification, that is, our growth in holiness and obedience, the great confusion with regard to sanctification is that we insist on seeing the controversy between the holy God and ourselves as a controversy over sin only, and not over the works of the author of sin in our lives. You need to know that the devil himself is waging war against you personally, and that Christ died to give you power to whip round on him, and like Jesus, when he turned on hapless Peter, name the devil and command him to go. Get behind me, Satan. So every time you and I are tempted to sin, it's not just a case of God's command plus our desire to obey that command. There's also the devil working to lead us astray from obedience. If we can stop and remember that and refuse to take his bait and tell him to get lost, we may begin to experience new victories in old areas of disobedience. And by the way, when we pray for unbelieving friends and family members, we need to factor the devil in there as well. Now certainly their own stubbornness and rebellion is a big part of the picture, but according to the New Testament, they are also under the power of Satan. He has blinded their minds and they're in his grip. So we ought to be praying for them as captives who need to be set free. Pray for the enemy's hold on them to be broken. But our main focus today is spiritual warfare in our own lives. And if we're going to factor the devil into our thinking, we need some awareness of what Paul calls the devil's schemes. What is the devil up to? I think we can identify four main areas, and the first is the most obvious, direct attack. So we're thinking under this heading about persecution, working through Satan, working through governments and regimes to just batter God's people. But this would also include the more weird and scary demonic manifestations can happen, especially in parts of the world where there's lots of spirit worship going on. But I don't think Satan's scheme of direct attack really needs much explanation. It's hard for us to miss. The next three of his schemes are much more subtle, and they tend to be the schemes that give the devil the most success, at least in a culture like ours. So the next one of his schemes is deceit and seduction. Those go together because the devil seduces us with lies. Jesus described the devil as a liar, and he's good at it. 
His lies are appealing and seductive. That's why we fall for them over and over again. Some of his favorite lies are the lie that God's blueprint for sex is there to spoil our fun. Or there's the lie that wealth and power can really fulfill us if we just get enough of them, which is always just a little bit more than we have. We fall for those lies again and again. But it will help us if we can remember Satan is not interested in us being fulfilled. He's not interested in us having any fun at all. He's only interested in in leading us away from God and destroying us. He wants to devour us. He does not want to give us a good time. If we can keep that in mind, we'll be more ready to tell him to clear off with his lies. One of Satan's main strategies is denying that reality is the way God says it is. That was his strategy way back in the beginning in the Garden of Eden. Rebelling against God won't really lead to death, he said. So Frederick Leahy says, Satan offers man an alien wisdom in place of the wisdom of God. He openly contradicts the word of God, and if it suits him better, twists and distorts it. He makes grandiose claims which are completely fictitious. He is the father of lies. Scripture says Satan likes to masquerade as an angel of light. A masquerade is a cover-up. It's a disguise. Satan likes to pose as our spiritual helper. But it's just a disguise. Because his aim is to lead us away from God's word. A genuine angel of light will never add anything to scripture. Will never teach us anything that's contrary to scripture. Any spiritual experience that takes us away from scripture is then of the devil. Martin Luther said, The devil hates the word of God more than any other thing. Another writer says, the devil is anti-word, anti-gospel. In the parable of the sower, Jesus warned that the devil snatches away the gospel word almost as soon as it is spoken. The first temptation consisted of questioning, doubting, and denying what God had said. One of the devil's most subtle and dangerous tactics is to bring false teaching into the church. Stuff that sounds appealing and it it sounds good, but it actually leads God's people away from God's word. The Apostle Paul warned Christians about false apostles, deceitful workers, masquerading, there's the word again, masquerading as apostles of Christ, masquerading as servants of righteousness. Paul says they look good, they sound good, but it's all a disguise. They're actually servants of Satan, who himself masquerades as an angel of light. And that's why James says in the New Testament, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. How horrible to have the responsibility for teaching God's word to God's people but instead to become an instrument of Satan to lead God's people away from God's word. 
Could there be anything worse than that? So make sure you pray for your teachers to be faithful. They may or they may not be exciting. That's negotiable. But they must be faithful to God's word. So it's absolutely essential you have your Bible open and your mind switched on when you listen to Bible teachers. Check what we're saying. Make sure it's true to what is there in the text of Scripture. Work at getting to know God's Word better for yourself. There's always some new fancy Dan preacher on the internet who sounds great, but who is subtly denying or twisting God's Word. There's always a new bestseller that sounds like it's bringing Christianity to the masses. But it's really bringing a distorted Christianity to the masses. Now, don't understand me. We must not become distrustful of everyone. That's not what I'm saying. We mustn't become doctrinal nitpickers. We mustn't write things off just because they're popular. And there are areas of honest disagreement between genuine Bible-loving Christians it's okay if we don't line up in every little detail as Christians. But we do have to be aware the devil has servants who pose as Bible teachers. We need to be people who search the Scriptures to see if what we're hearing is true. Just because someone waves around a big Bible, it doesn't mean they're saying stuff that's true. Paul told Timothy... The Spirit clearly teaches that in later times some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits and things taught by demons. And those things are going to come through the mouths of human teachers. We have to be alert. Not suspicious, not nitpickers, but we do have to be alert. Alongside deceit and seduction, the devil likes to use accusation and discouragement. The Bible calls Satan the accuser. Now it tells us that since Christ's victory, Satan has lost his ability to accuse us in God's presence. God won't listen to him anymore. But Satan will still accuse us down here. Sproul says, we are familiar with the way in which Satan tempts us, but his greater work for the Christian is accusation, to point his finger in your face about your guilt, to take you away from the cross, away from the gospel, and point out how bad you are. You're a rubbish Christian. Now, we do have to be careful here, because one of the roles of the Holy Spirit is to convict us of sin, Right? Sin is never good, and if we're trundling along contentedly in some sin, well, the Holy Spirit loves us enough to disrupt our contentment. He will make us miserable in our sin until we repent of it and turn from it. So here's the question. If you and I are feeling bad about sin, how do we know if it's a good work of the Holy Spirit or a scheme of Satan to discourage us? To steal our joy in Christ. How do you know? Well, again, R.C. Sproul is helpful on this. It's a long quote, but I think it's very valuable. 
He says, one of the difficult things in the Christian life is to discern between the work of the Holy Spirit in convicting us of sin and the work of Satan in accusing us of sin because they both may be pointing at the same transgression. But I've noticed this difference. When the Holy Spirit convicts us of sin, as painful as it may be for a moment, there's always something sweet in it. Because in conviction, the Spirit always gives us the promise of forgiveness and restoration. However, when Satan accuses us, his purpose is to destroy us, to paralyze us, to cause us to abandon all hope. So when Satan comes with his accusations, we have to say, sticks and stones, Satan, get out of here. We know we're guilty, but we have Christ. We have the gospel. And that is our shield against your accusations. So in our sin, the Holy Spirit will bring hope of forgiveness and restoration. And in contrast to that, the devil will seek to make us despair of forgiveness and restoration. So I would recommend for all of us memorizing this verse. It's from the hymn, Before the Throne of God Above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, I look to heaven. And see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God, the just, is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. The gospel never minimizes our sin and it never leaves us in despair over sin. That is Satan's work. Then another main tactic of the devil is using the opportunities we give him. Our own lack of discipline can present the devil with lots of opportunities to harm us. And the New Testament has plenty to say about this. Here's Paul speaking about the need to guard our relationships in the church. He says, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor." For we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Paul is saying when we let our anger boil away without working to resolve it, without trying to be reconciled to our brother or sister, when we do that, we're just giving the devil a foothold in the church. And we're giving him a foothold in our own hearts. And he loves nothing better than to exploit those kind of opportunities. To divide the church and make us bitter people. We think we're just fighting our corner, but the devil's having a laugh. So next time you feel your anger flaring up against a brother or sister in Christ, next time you feel the desire to nurture that grievance, And stroke it. Remember, that would be playing into the devil's hands. Remember that and then spoil the devil's fun by working to put things right with your brother or sister. In another place, Paul says, when we refuse to forgive one another, we are letting Satan outwit us. How many belly laughs has Satan had over the years 
because he has exploited the pride and the anger of Christians and used it to split churches. And when churches split, God's reputation is dragged through the mud and the cause of the gospel suffers great damage. So let's make up our minds that we're not going to give the devil the satisfaction. And remarkably, the New Testament also tells us Christians can be used as Satan's mouthpiece. Matthew chapter 16 records Peter's amazing confession that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. We've been memorizing it on Sunday evenings. And Jesus responded to Peter's confession by saying, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. Peter had the blessing in that moment of being God's mouthpiece to declare the truth about Jesus. But just four verses later in Matthew 16, we read this. Right after Peter's confession. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Earlier, Peter had recognized that Jesus was the Messiah. But Peter didn't want Jesus to be the kind of Messiah Jesus came to be. And so Peter essentially became a tempter to Jesus, tempting him to abandon the path to the cross. That's what Satan did back in Matthew chapter 4. Peter's doing it again, and Jesus recognizes the true source of Peter's words. The devil is using Peter's expectations for Jesus as an opportunity to tempt Jesus through Peter. And all of that followed the wonderful occasion when Peter had been God's mouthpiece to declare the truth about Jesus. Now, there's no indication there that Peter was being demon-possessed. That's not what this is talking about at all. He simply thought that he knew better than Jesus did. And that gave the devil an opportunity to use Peter in the situation. So let's be careful that we never become a mouthpiece for Satan. That we never allow him to use us to tempt another believer away from God's will and God's commands. I don't know if you've ever watched sumo wrestling. I'm guessing you've never participated in it, but maybe you've seen it. Or a martial art like judo. Those fighting methods are based on the principle of using your opponent's own weight and momentum against them. So your opponent leans or lunges in a certain direction and you just help them on their way. That's how smaller guys can defeat bigger guys. You use the opponent's weight and momentum 
with the result that they end up either on their back or face down chewing the mat. That's a good way of understanding this particular scheme of the devil. He loves to use our own momentum against us. So if we're angry, he will be more than happy to lead us on into bitter, entrenched anger. If we feel aggrieved that something God has allowed in our life, the devil will be more than happy to lead us on into full-scale rebellion against God. If we're playing around feeding our lust, the devil will be more than happy to use that momentum to send us into a harmful relationship or full-scale addiction to lust. If we're toying around with greed, the devil will be more than happy to send us toppling into proper idolatry where we're living for money and possessions. What about envy and jealousy that we toy around with, that we tolerate? If we let those things fester in our lives, the devil will have a field day with them. Don't let the devil use his sumo trick on you. Don't lean towards sin so he can tip you right into it. Instead, let's lean towards righteousness and holiness. And then if the devil does attack us, maybe he'll accidentally tip us further in the right direction. That happens. When Satan's attacks actually drive us closer to God. That happened with Paul's thorn in the flesh. He doesn't tell us what it was. Something bad. He says it was from Satan. But it led Paul to deeper reliance on Christ. You can read about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Lean towards holiness and righteousness instead of leaning towards sin. And that leads us into our last section. Taking our stand against the devil's schemes. Hopefully we now have some idea of how the devil works, what he's up to. So how do we go to war against him? Well, surely the first step is to recognize that Satan is a factor in our struggles with sin. He's not an excuse, but he is a factor. Our first step in taking our stand against him is to recognize the Christian life is not just us seeking to live for God. There's also the devil seeking to prevent us living for God. And that is why Paul said in the famous chapter on spiritual warfare and spiritual armor, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Spiritual warfare begins when we realize there's a spiritual war going on. Spiritually speaking, we do not live in peacetime. Once we wake up to that, we are well on the way to standing firm against the devil and resisting him as the Bible calls us to. So our first step in taking our stand against the devil's schemes is to recognize we're at war. The second step might seem contradictory. Remember the war is won. But it's not a contradiction. It's just 
what we saw at the beginning. Satan has already lost this war that's going on. If we take our part in the war seriously, we cannot lose. Because Jesus has triumphed over Satan at the cross. Satan's power is broken. The risen Christ has already begun to reign. That's why the New Testament does not call us to win the war. If we read through the New Testament and look at the words it uses, it calls us to resist the devil. It calls us to stand against the devil. If we do that, we cannot lose because Christ has already won. So one writer says, Christians are not working towards victory, but from a victory already achieved. Our downfall as Christians is when we give up resisting and give up standing against the devil. So Richard Baucom says, the only way Christians can lose is to switch sides or quit. I think that is really helpful. The only way we can lose is to switch sides or quit. Keep going and you can't lose. Our role is to hold our ground in the strength provided through the use of traditional spiritual disciplines. We conquer Satan not by overwhelming all opposition to the gospel, but by remaining firm in the face of opposition. So what do we mean by traditional spiritual disciplines? We mean persistent prayer, bringing all situations to God. That way the devil will not be able to isolate us. By traditional spiritual disciplines, we also mean the pursuit of holiness, aiming to honor God in all situations. That way the devil will be less able to use his sumo trick on us, tipping us into sin that we're already toying with. Traditional spiritual disciplines also means making sure we share our lives with other Christians in a church fellowship so we can be built up and strengthened in our faith. And as part of all those other disciplines, we need to make constant use of God's word. We need to be refreshed by God's promises when we're weary, when Satan is accusing us. We can counter Satan's lies and accusations with God's wisdom and truth. Martin Luther said, God's word produces and strengthens faith. It conquers sin, the devil, death, hell, and all evil. Had Eve only clung to the word of God, she could have resisted the temptation of the serpent. Letting go the word, she fell into sin. This is a universal principle. When one lets go the word, there can be no other result. So pray. Pursue holiness. Share your life with other Christians. Let your life be saturated with God's word. And what that means is, ultimately, we take our stand against the devil's schemes simply by persevering in the Christian life. Every day. Is that really it? Can that really be spiritual warfare? What about going after the demons? What about exorcisms, power encounters, facing them down and chasing them out? 
Well, no doubt there may be situations where that is called for. But the New Testament does not present those things as normal spiritual warfare. It doesn't. Normal spiritual warfare means taking the Christian life seriously. If we do that, we will successfully resist the devil. We will stand firm against his schemes and his attacks. So Peter Bolt says, this is not a call to turn and face the devil in some fevered last-ditch battle. It is a call to live for Christ, believing the gospel word that the devil has been defeated, being constantly soothed by it, and entering into the new life for which Christ has already delivered us. The New Testament does not promise that will be easy. The book of Revelation calls us to be faithful even to the point of death. So we're not promised that prayer, holiness, fellowship, and attention to God's Word are going to get Satan to leave us alone. We're not promised that those spiritual disciplines will exempt us from suffering. God has not promised to put an impervious hedge around us in that sense. But he has promised that even death cannot defeat us. Because beyond death, we are promised life as our victor's crown. It's Revelation 2. That was the route Jesus Christ took through suffering and death, to eternal glory. It may be the path we are called to take. But we can be sure God will bring us through even the worst of Satan's attacks. The only way we can lose is to switch sides or quit. So here's the last word on spiritual warfare. Those who are members of the family of God need not fear the evil one. They are to be alert and watchful and clad in the armor which God supplies. But in Christ, their victorious Redeemer, they face the devil and his dark angels fearlessly.